Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first Open EU Debate podcast, which addresses the future of Europe after coronavirus. The global spread of the virus has become a test for the European Union and its member states. My name is Carlos Carmincero Uravallen. I'm a journalist based in Brussels, in a very sunny Brussels today, by the way. And I will be moderating a series of podcasts which will analyze how Europe is actually going to look like after this pandemic it's over. Because yes, this will be over one day, hopefully soon. And we need to be ready with some answers. Alongside me, I have Alvaro Oleart, postdoctoral researcher at the Freie Universität Amsterdam who is the guest editor of today's conversation. Hello, Alvaro, how are you doing today? Yeah, very good. Thanks, Carlos. So what sort of Europe is going to come out of the coronavirus crisis? We address this question with two brilliant European minds, Catherine de Vries and Alberto Alemán. Catherine de Vries is a professor of political science at the Università Bocconi and former colleague of mine at the VU and author of the book, Euroscepticism and the Future of European Integration and co-author of the recently published The Rise of Challenger Parties in Europe. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, uh, as you just heard, there is also another guest joining us today, and uh, that is uh, Alberto Alemano, who is the Jean Monnet Professor in EU Law at HSC Paris, and founder of the NGO The Good Lobby, an advocacy organization that aims to democratize lobbying for the many, not the few. Alberto, how are you today? Welcome. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. All right. So now uh, that presentations are over, uh, I know there are so many questions we are thinking of these lockdown days. But at least I'd like to start with something that I think uh, we've been all thinking about in the last in the last few weeks, and this is whether this is a make or break moment for the EU. I think Alvaro, you you should kickstart the conversation. As I think you, I read a post that you wrote for Open EU Debate some days ago. So I think I'd like to know what's your what's your view on this. Well, um, Carlos, I, I diligently go to the balcony every evening at 8 p.m. to applaud the work of all the heroes in this pandemic: doctors, nurses, and essential workers. An action that is that is also repeated in several European countries, also with certain distinctions. I believe in Italy they sing the Bella Ciao at 6 p.m. and some friends of mine seeing the international uh, instead of uh, applauding. And of course, we have seen that EU member states have mobilized to help each other, for instance, with the, the delivery of, of medical equipment. So there are some transnational phenomena that, that lead me to think that this crisis could bring European citizens and EU member states closer together. However, at the same time, there are also signs of increasing nationalism. For example, in Hungary and the Netherlands, um, in regards to the Eurogroup. So there is this tension between transnational solidarity and nationalism. I tend to side on the side of optimism and believe that this crisis might lead to further European integration. And Catherine, one of your recent tweets referred to this tension also showing optimism when, when your four-year-old daughter sings the Bella Ciao at 6 p.m. while running around the house. I don't know, how do you see this tension? Yeah, that's true. So so in, in some ways, I think there's there's maybe two two kind of make or break moments going at the same time. So one that you refer to, which is the Eurozone recovery or the first uh, emergency in the recovery, and the other part is, is Hungary. 
uh, which is uh, which is perhaps the using of this crisis moment in order to break with some democratic uh, traditions. So I don't know. We'll see how far we can talk about both of those kind of economic and political crises at the same time. But I find myself personally kind of torn. I'm a Dutch person living in Italy. It couldn't be the worst idea, right? So there's a lot of these kind of uh, kind of criticisms that are going up about the EU at the moment that I feel in my own, uh, you know, my own identity, if you will. And uh, and 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 even though I see my daughter, you know, walking around, uh, feeling perhaps more Italian than she did before, uh, I I I I really ponder if this, you know, we all the EU is always developed out of crisis, but I wonder if this one is qualitatively different. And I think on the way that you described it, that we see really some acts of nationalism closing borders, right, quite extreme. It's also in the, in the US, so we shouldn't overestimate it. Uh, but nonetheless, a lot of this kind of nationalism and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and focus on, on the own country rather than on the, on the shared uh, coordination, for example. So, so I, I don't know where I land yet. You know me a little bit, so I tend to be more probably pessimistic than optimistic. Uh, but, I, but, I, but I don't know yet. I haven't made up my mind yet. And Alberto? Well, um, I think that um, any crisis uh, provides an acceleration uh, of, of an historical cycle. Uh, and this acceleration is somehow under our eyes, at least when we discuss about both the, the economic and the political um, moments that you have identified. But at the same time, when you think about our daily life and daily reality, we all feel somehow suspended. It's like if history was uh, paralyzed and uh, we didn't actually have the chance to shape it ourselves because of our home confinement, and home confinement that is affecting more than half of the world population. So this is something absolutely unprecedented. Uh, I also feel, uh, like Catherine, that this crisis is qualitatively different than previous crises that the European Integration Project had to face. Um, we still have to identify what are the features making this uh, potential or actual crisis different than others. But we certainly feel that the level of awareness um, about the European dimension of this crisis is certainly higher uh, and more and is affecting people more directly than any other crisis before. And I think this is what potentially makes, if you take the optimistic view that I uh, tend to take usually, um, it can give you some hope uh, that this acceleration might actually provide uh, further, uh, further space uh, for the emergence of a Europe we haven't seen or we haven't experienced before. I mean, paradoxically, while at the same time we have seen that indeed there is less transnational travel, but for obvious reasons, we are also seeing that, let's say, uh, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen appearing in, on Spanish public television or the French radio, Giuseppe Conte, uh, Italian Prime Minister, doing the same, appearing live um, Spanish television, the Germany's uh, largest newspaper built, publishing this front page, calling for solidarity and, and saying, siamo con voi. So we're seeing a little bit the, this this trend. I, I think I wanted to, to ask you something to, related to what Alvaro was just saying. And this is whether, yes, we're seeing more Europe, we're seeing more the, the European leaders, and I think we're expecting more from them. And this reminded me of other crises, although I agree that this crisis is too too big and, and, and to, to be compared to, the, to a recent crisis. But is there again a capability expectations gap? Is there a tendency from EU citizens to look at the EU as a project that is working too well and is ready to, 
to, to bring a solution overnight, even if we are facing a crisis that we never think of? Uh, what's, what's, your view, what's your view on these uh, capability expectations on, on how the EU is responding? So I, I personally have the feeling, but I might be, you know, I'm, uh, we maybe consume also different media. I have, the, I have the feeling that this is much more a national leader's moment, if you will. So this idea that political scientists often call rally around the flag. So this is about, hey, we've seen a patchwork of national responses. So the Netherlands does something different than Italy, Austria, Sweden, again, do something differently. And indeed, there are crossovers, as Alvaro described. So, so newspaper articles that are done by different, you know, also Dutch people uh, publishing stuff in, uh, in, in Repubblica, in the, in, in the Italian newspaper. So there are kind of transnational moments. But I do think that people are looking very much towards their own national leaders. And actually, the EU at the beginning has been a bit absent, a bit, um, a bit uh, hesitant on, uh, on, on, pro on profiling itself. And I think that one of the reasons, and, and, and I think Alberto was asking also a little bit like what might be behind this qualitatively different element is the fact that what the EU is able to deal with is what you now also see as the economic emergency response or the recovery response. But the health aspect, of course, is something that is primarily a national competence. So I think to just kind of have a benevolent reading of what the commission did at the beginning, it didn't really want to step in because it felt like, well, this is a national competence. We don't want to do so much. But as a result, we have, you know, member states bidding for masks on the international market. We have a lot of coordination, which is lost. So I, I have the feeling that, that there is actually a lot of expectation going to the national level and that the EU has, has, has kind of remained a little bit absent into that level. But as I said, it might be also just my perception a little bit. And the Italian perception, I think, is different than, than maybe some other member states. But, but that would be the kind of, kind of uh, observation that I would make. My, my feeling is that the, the expectation uh, by the average citizen vis-a-vis -vis the European Union and expecting the European Union to deliver on, on such a crisis is, crisis is quite important. Um, I feel that even Eurosceptic, even people who generally uh, tend to uh, reduce the scope of maneuver of the European Union, are currently expecting uh, that the EU should play a role in it. I think the best example is Matteo Salvini, who is currently pleading for Eurobonds, is expecting almost a European, a federal European Union to deliver solutions uh, for his own government. when his own uh, party uh, colleagues, uh, European political party colleagues in the Netherlands, but also elsewhere, are currently not sharing or ac actually are those opposing uh, su such a view. So those expectations today would show that this is a major uh, European moment, but inevitably it has to go through national political debates in the absence of a European political space in which these inconsistencies, which are pretty visible to our eyes because we are specialists, are not intelligible to the average European. And I think this is what I feel happening at the moment. But I mean, if, if we have learned something from this crisis and from previous crises, is that when we talk about the EU, we talk about national governments. And, and while it is true that indeed the debate is very much focused at the national level, maybe uh, to challenge a little bit, uh, maybe this is also a good thing because, I mean, say in Spain, uh, there were rarely debates about the position of Spain in the Eurogroup or the European Council uh, before it, it took place. 
the only possible debates were a posteriori, were after uh, any uh, decision was made. So in a way, we are seeing a, a, a slow emergence of a sort of European public sphere in that there, there are national debates, but that, that there are very European in nature, something that might not have been the case previously. So, so the thing is, what I find interesting is in the sense that there's, I, I very much agree with Alberto, that there's a lot of uh, a lot of demands made to the EU level. So even from indeed a populist like Salvini, who was on the same uh, picture with Geert Wilders, and, and as we just outlined, Geert Wilders has very different positions on Eurobonds than someone like Matteo Salvini. The issue is, I think, is, is to what extent is this really credible? So is this just part of a domestic blame game where someone like Salvini wants to just get Conte in every way possible, so get the Prime Minister of Italy Conte in every way possible? Or is this general, genuine kind of a, a appeal to the European level? And I, so far as I can see, the only one who made that ideational appeal to the European level was not Macron, which maybe some people had suggested, but was, was Sanchez when he wrote in several newspapers and really uh, went back and wrote, and, and wrote about the ideational legacy of Europe and how this is built on solidarity after the Second World War and, and the Spanish position, you know, calling it a Marshall Plan and a lot of kind of symbolism that comes back to the origin of, uh, of, uh, of, of Europe. But, it's, but you didn't see it, for example, in Maca's response. She didn't talk about the international dimension in her, her TV addresses at all. You did not see that of, uh, of Rutte. It was... And, and you saw it in Conte, but it was more like, oh, we need help from Europe, right? So it was not necessarily an, an, an ideational appeal. So, so in that way, it is, it, is, it is interesting. So we're still early on, so we don't know how will this, this will develop later. But I wonder if, if we need to distinguish between real ideational responses to Europe vis-a-vis -vis kind of domestic you know, point scoring of, of certain actors. And I think both of those phenomena are going on at the same time. One question I want, I want to ask you, Catherine, you were saying uh, this is a national leaders moment. And I think this is very much a moment where we're seeing uh, the state in action. We were talking for decades, even years about globalization and making states feel so small. And overnight, we, we see now the power of the states in action, whether they're deploying armies in the capitals, whether enforcing strict regulations, uh, preventing people to do normal lives in the streets. So. After this national moment, what should we expect in Europe? Should we expect more collaboration between those member states? Should we expect uh, more more powers in the in the in the European Council? A Europe of more intergovernmental Europe? Should we see a more federal Europe and and and, and maybe even more uh, policies in other areas that were not explored before, such as health? What is what is the uh, what? How do you see? Uh, the after after this pandemic is over, how do you see policymakers uh, reacting in that regard? So, so I think it's 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 really important what you say is to distinguish between this first kind of a, a first kind of phase where I think there's a lot of rally around the flag in a time of crisis, especially maybe Spain is the exception because we've seen much criticism of of, of opposition parties towards uh, towards Sanchez. But overall, in other countries, you see less opposition towards the government. Because this is a time in which there are, you know, you know, simple. I mean, just saying it very crudely, there are bodies on the streets, right? So in that in in that period, it's it's you don't see a lot of criticism towards 
uh, a government. So it allows for the government to kind of flag out its own position. However, when time goes on and when this moves from a, from a health urgency into a deep economic crisis, which, it, it, which I think when we go lockdown, open up, lockdown again, I mean, that's what, what experts expect, uh, will definitely be the case, then, then, then a lot of bets are off. So if I, would, if I would take history as an example, so I find it difficult to you know, project in the future, but if, if I would take history as a, as, as, a, as, a, as a way to think about it, so first I think that debates about Europe are going to become quite toxic again quite quickly. So that means that, that, uh, that a lot of the uh, Eurosceptic entrepreneurs are using this moment to say, well, Europe has not given us what's good for us, right? So the Dutch are going to say, this is, this is too much. The Italians are going to say, this is too little. You know, a lot of that thing, what we saw also in 2010, and I think that will be going on, especially given that there are elections, for example, in the Netherlands uh, next year. The other part, however, will be is that also these nation states need coordination in order to deal with both the economic fallout and the health fallout. Because if Austria unlocks, which it's, it's doing, right, and it opens its borders again with Switzerland and, and, uh, and Italy, which would have different, different things in place, right, different apps, different type of, of, of laws, you get all these negative externalities or all these, these spillovers from one country into the other where we need coordination. So I, I would hope, at least, that, that, that in the future, uh, member states will work together and see the potential that the, that, the, that, the, that the Commission has in order to coordinate when it comes to testing, when it comes to uh, you know, how we deal with, uh, with unlocking certain countries and how we deal with, for example, cross-border uh, activity. Alvaro, do you want to, to react to that? Did you, did you see member states uh, learning from this crisis and saying Commission, uh, acknowledging the fact that the Commission is well positioned to uh, have better policies and prevent a crisis like this? Well, yes. I mean, just to counter maybe a little bit of what, what Catherine just said, um, when Pedro Sánchez speaks in a critical way of Europe, because he's been very critical of, of, of the uh, European positions, I, I find that this, this is something innovative and, and, and interesting in that in Spain, for instance, we have generally had a very uh, depoliticized debate about Europe in, in, in a very Euro... Uh, accepting way but not really discussing it in, in a critical way and this actually maybe opens uh, the possibility of being a little bit more critical of criticizing what the European Union is doing while at the same time accepting um, its authority so uh, it is true that, that that this might lead a little bit to uh, to the old Eurosceptic versus pro-European uh, conflict line uh, but at the same time, I think it also opens opportunities to um, normalize the European uh, European debate, normalize conflict over European policies. Alberto, how do you how do you see this? Uh, what what's your view on this particular uh, topic we were just discussing? Well, I think if today we have a financial package on the table that still has to be adopted by the Council, is mainly because the European Union went through a crisis that defined procedures and mechanisms that today do not seem fit for purpose, but at least they provided some initial, uh, I would say, background uh, for this conversation to happen. We don't have the same level of coordination uh, in the public health field for a variety of reasons, but in essence, because the major crisis we had in that space had to do with zoonosis, and this is the medical disease 
at the end of the 90s, potentially uh, the only way, the only time uh, in which uh, a crisis led the European Commission to lose political consensus and to basically led to a major political crisis. Um, so it is pretty clear that today the conditions are met for European leaders to uh, learn their mistakes uh, when it comes to health preparedness and why they haven't been able to take full advantage of a provision, which is Article uh, 168, which is a, a, a major legal basis in the treaty, which doesn't allow the European Union the possibility to propose harmonized measures, but it actually requires member states to accept the European Union to lead in situation of cross-border uh, threat emergency. And it's pretty clear that we are witnessing uh, such a, a situation. Since 2009, uh, these legal bases require the member states and ask the European Commission to occupy such a space. And we have a lot of evidence today suggesting that every single time the European Union, notably the Commissioner on Health, but also the Crisis Management uh, Commissioner, tried to step in, several member states opposed or resisted the possibility that the European Union, notably the Commission, rely and mobilize those competence. So I think this is uh, quite uh, telling of the situation we are undergoing. It is pretty clear that uh, the health coordination is very much embryonic and is not fully developed. And the lack of political leadership and the political capital of the Commission has also weakened further uh, the self-confidence of this Commission to take full advantage of this uh, possibility. I think uh, during the next few days we are going to be witnessing a major moment of truth uh, when it comes to the public health competence of the Union as Member States and as anticipated by Catherine are moving uh, towards a phase two and they are about to relax their measure there we're going to see to what extent the Commission will be able as announced at the beginning of this week uh, we'll be able to actually coordinate uh, those actions by setting up some common criteria defining not what kind of measures should be relaxed or adopted, but when and how those relaxations should actually occur in order to regain uh, the uh, free movement, uh, which is one of the preconditions for uh, our daily existence and which should not only affect uh, individuals, but obviously also products and goods, which at the moment are also facing some obstacles or more obstacle they they should they should get uh, alberto i want to ask maybe you or the others want to react to this but uh, it, i mean we just saw a commission like uh, reacting slowly and, and 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 really not not taking advantage of some powers and being boycotted even by 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 member states to have a bigger role but we, we should remember that this is a commission that just started their their job in december so do you think it, it played a role, the fact that this commission just started and it was not really working at full speed when this huge tsunami just arrived and, and everyone was trying to figure out how to react? Do you think that played a role or do you think with the Juncker commission we would have seen the same kind of reaction? Well, I think uh, we are already quite into year one of this, of this commission. Um, so... Uh, obviously, we don't have a counterfactual. We don't know how the Juncker Commission would have acted in these circumstances in, in the year one. But uh, let me remind you that uh, the way in which this commission has been put together, the way in which the leaders, the top leaders have been chosen, uh, has been identified as deeply problematic by many observers. And my guess, educated guess, is that this dynamic has 
shape up a commission uh, which is uh, very different than the previous commission and the relationship existing between the president and the other commissioner and the asset and design in terms of power dynamics is a very different from the previous one. This inevitably played a role and this extends also to the relationship with other institutions. The fact that Mr. Sassoli, the president of the European Commission, has been recently excluded uh, by the five president informal meetings and it has been somehow excluded by the conversation, also reflects something which I find deeply problematic. The fact that today the center of gravity, the political center of gravity of the European Parliament, uh, as it emerged from the May uh, 2019 election, doesn't find reflection in the political uh, positioning of the five presidents. And I think this has become even more problematic in a situation of crisis, uh, because inevitably it gives rise to distortion. I, 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 would, I just want to second that, actually, because I think there's two other things that we can mention here. So you also saw, of course, yeah, the Commission uh, spokesperson later on said that they went rogue, but Breton and Gentiloni uh, taking different positions when it comes to eurobonds because their governments were taking also different positions. And also what you saw is perhaps some people, it's difficult to know exactly, but a... Uh, stories leaking about um, uh, from the line stopping action when it comes to uh, when it comes to Hungary, uh, because uh, being beholden through the EPP and through their own uh, institution in, in 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 terms of her own vote. So we don't know everything yet. There's also a lot of discussion, but I do think that that the initial idea that this was a quote unquote more intergovernmental intergovernmental commission and a more member states based commission uh, which uh, which uh, uh, alberto just uh, just kind of uh, uh, alluded to comes in play here and i think that what you also saw is uh, is i think that was that was taken aback by many scholars including myself who are more political economy that some of the some of the references that the commission president von der leyen took towards you know Euro bonds being a being a kind of uh, a term that you just use where there are white papers on these issues, right? So that it, it was a bit of a, a some some unfortunate uh, uh, events that that came on. It could have to do with the fact that this commission is new. It could have to fact uh, to do with the fact that that commissioners feel more torn between their national capitals and uh, and and the commission, if you will, right? Uh, so so it's it's maybe too early to tell, but 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 I, but I do think that uh, that that combined with the fact that there's not a natural path uh, in health for this commission that it could tread, right? Uh, um, yeah, makes it makes it a mixed bag when it comes to looking at at how the commission dealt with this crisis so far. Is it a question, though, of the, the, the current commission or the institutional setup of the EU as a whole? Because, I mean, if anything, I think that this crisis might have exposed the, the nature uh, of, of the EU as essentially a sort of club of states where um, the main decisions are thought to be taken by uh, national leaders in councils where the accountability at the at the national level uh, is relatively low in terms of politicization, right? But at the moment in which we are seeing an increasing politicization of Europe, um, is it the time to push uh, for, for a different power balance between institutions to give more uh, power to the European Parliament and to make a sort of European government led by the European Commission 
uh, and, and an opposition or, a, or an accountable institution like the European Parliament. So I, I think in one way, this is also a legacy of the past crisis, right? So uh, uh, research done by, I think, for example, Chris Bickerton and colleagues of, of, of the push um, uh, towards, uh, or, or, or let's say the moving of gravity towards the, uh, towards the council, right? That, that, that stems out of the last uh, uh, commission. Also, the oftentimes moving of very difficult um, decisions when it comes to the, it comes to the economic part of this, where we have a monetary integration but not a joint fiscal policy. Oh, let's just do this via the ECB, right? Because the ECB has majority vote. Uh, so, so you see some of the things that 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 are really a legacy of the previous crisis that you now see kind of exacerbated. So, if we would take back what we know of the previous crisis, then it could be that at the end of this, we see an even more intergovernmental Europe, right? So we see an even more fragmented Europe. So, so, so it's difficult. I mean, I do have to say to the defense of the commission, the, the, the commission was, of course, trying to make a splash with a green deal with a lot of, I mean, all of that has been kind of derailed, right? So a lot of their own agenda setting that was pushed forward has now been pushed back. But, but yeah, no, I, I share some concern that was raised by, by, by all of you now about that this just kind of is another way of, of putting... Um, an amplifying glass on on already a pattern of gravity of of power moving away from quote unquote more more community institutions to more inter intergovernmental institutions. I mean, this leads us, for instance, to uh, to talk about the conference on the future of Europe, which was meant to start on on the 9th of May, um, and that will most likely be postponed for for after the summer. Um, and I know Alberto that you have. Uh, written a little bit about it. Uh, what does this crisis maybe tell us about uh, how the this conference should be um, organized? Well, I think that the conference on the future of Europe was um, a pretty uh, bad answer to a good question, which uh, has to do with how to rethink the institutional design and the power dynamics Catherine was alluding to earlier on but also an opportunity to re-ask those questions, the very same questions we've asked ourselves 20 years ago uh, in the White Paper on Governance, and which have led then to the Lacan Declaration into that kind of treaty constitutional building uh, exercise that failed for a variety of reasons. So that's the context uh, that we have to consider, uh, the fact that this top-down exercise tried to act as a potential deus ex machina and solving all all problems was a bit far-fetched as, as an idea. I think uh, what we are witnessing today, COVID-19 and the impact it's going to have on citizens' lives and the national political system and their interaction with the European embryonic, embryonic political system is uh, much more powerful. And it tells us that as a dynamic, we'll be governing any further uh, rethinking uh, of institutional issues on the one hand and a policy rediscussion, including the Green New Deal uh, in, in the future. So in a way, COVID-19 uh, has anticipated the beginning and the start of the conference in the future of Europe. We never had so many opportunities to engage because this is the self-proclaimed goal of the conference in the future of Europe, which is to listen to European citizens and to hear what are their expectations vis-a-vis -vis the European Union. So in a way, COVID is preparing very well the Conference on the Future of Europe, which obviously now has to be entirely retold. It has to be redesigned by taking uh, more into account uh, the vast literature existing on uh, 
deliberative democracy, citizens' assemblies, and many publics, and trying to think how to get civil society involved and potentially flipping entirely the design, the institutional design of the Conference in the Future of Europe, to design it in a way that is civil society leading instead of having the European institution fighting one another to have more or less seats as it has been the case over the last few months. At the moment we lack a joint declaration uh, of the three institutions. We have uh, a decision which has been adopted by the Parliament, which is, let's say, the most progressive uh, decision. We have the Commission one, which is basically a replica of the citizens' dialogues we had all across Europe before the elections. And then we have the Council, which still has to take a stance on it. So uh, what I know from my own contacts and readings is that Mr. Sassoli's statements already imply uh, that an informal decision to postpone the beginning of the conference has been taken, uh, but uh, this is not formalized. So we can expect uh, that uh, it will be after the summer in which this conversation potentially will start again and in which academics, civil societies, observers will have the chance to finally shape a different kind of conversation than the one was, which was about to start in a very, uh, I would say, naive uh, way uh, in uh, May or May the 9th. I mean, this is very interesting, and and I think um, Kathleen was was writing a, a Twitter thread uh, in which uh, you said that public opinion is not exogenous, that it is malleable in the sense that uh, politicians uh, have an opportunity to make their voice heard, and and maybe now there is an opportunity for actually domestic political elites to talk about Europe in a different way that that might lead in the sense that uh, Alberto is pointing out. I don't know, Katrin, if you want to... Yeah, so, so, so I think if you, if, if you think about that is that what you see now a lot, especially if you think about the Dutch finance minister Hoekstra, but also maybe partly for the, for, for the Italian side, is that one seems to be hiding a little bit behind public opinion. We have to do this because otherwise, you know, there's not going to be a response for that. And interestingly, today, uh, a colleague, uh, Lucio Baccaro at, uh, at the Max Planck Institute, uh, showed that, for example, Germans are more, depending on a frame of how you sell this, if you will, are, are kind of open to, to euro bonds or to shared, shared debt mutualization. It's difficult to poll that, but I mean, I've seen that also, that public opinion is not so, not so kind of pro-anti, right? It's, it's much more trying to look upon politicians and what they say. And I have the feeling that many politicians, especially, you know, let me just take the Dutch example, where there's an election next, next year, where the right wants to win that election and, and actually Hoekstra is in the middle of a leadership contest and your skepticism sells at, at the moment on the right, that, that that is very short-term minded, so that a lot of national politicians are thinking about the next election, but are not necessarily thinking about, okay, what is the future of Europe and how do we deal with that? So a lot of hard truths about does our destiny economically and politically lie in Europe and how we're going to shape that and what are the compromises that we need to take are not really discussed. And I think you saw it more in Germany. So I think in Germany, there is a debate starting, very different discussion than in 2010. But the Dutch have almost taken up that, that kind of, you know, sin, sinners and saints type of, uh, type of uh, logic. And politicians have also played that into the hands. So it's very difficult also when um, national politicians are, not, are using this a lot for domestic consumption. In one way, it helps. I think Alberto put it, put it on Twitter as well to say that it helps you sell a European outcome in your domestic arena. But on the other hand, you also kind of feed sometimes 
you know, your critique or because everything, you know, it's, it's, it's neither fish nor meat, we say in Dutch, right? So it, there's really not kind of any stance that's being taken. And I think that is a time where you see that, I think for politicians, if they really think that their destiny politically, economically and socially lies in Europe, then you can't hide behind public opinion. You have to, try, you have to start shaping it. I think we're, we're in good shape. And I wanted to ask you specifically about uh, going back to expectations and whether, because I was reading some comments by uh, by uh, Conte, and he was he was telling he was telling the BBC uh, uh, this is a big challenge for the existence of Europe, and I think uh, I, I find this interesting on, on 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 whether some citizens may feel that they are uh, being led behind. Uh, on the EU decisions, and this re this relates to the debate on the euro and to the, the decisions and the and the and the strong positions they they are taking in the Netherlands and whether so do you do you see a risk of um, I'm not going to say another Brexit in the future due to what's happening now, but but whether we're going to see more citizens being disappointed and also due to the fact that they are more and more informed and they discuss more about Europe, but they may discuss it in a way that they expect always more and they feel that they are being led behind. What do you, what do you, uh, how do you see this idea? Yeah, so, so I, th I think in my own work, I've often had the, had the kind of analogy where it's like a tree, right? So you have now the apples of European integration. We started this project a long time ago. This tree had to grow. It got more and more branches to it. And many people, I think, are very happy in, well, in some parts of Europe, they think that the apples are sour, right? So the apples are not as good as they could be. So I think that's very much a discussion in Italy, where they feel that they've been left alone when it comes to the migration uh, uh, problematic, if that's true or not. But I think that's, that's definitely the feeling. And the same is that they haven't seen the same level of growth when it comes to the, to the, to the euro or kind of eurozone advancement. But what you see a little bit happening in, 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 in a country like the Netherlands is that people are, 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 are really, you know, more than willing to take the apples because the Netherlands are, is really benefiting substantially from the, from the single market as a small open economy. And, and many people have, have outlined that. But they're now thinking, well, maybe we don't need the tree anymore, right? So the, the, almost the success of integration in and of itself becomes the reason that people think they have the buffer to go it alone, right? And, and that is a kind, of, a kind of interesting element of, of, of integration more generally about how we organize that, that we maybe haven't thought about, right? That, that, that you get the talented people coming out of, of Italy, that you didn't have to educate yourself and you, you're reaping the benefits, but you actually think that those benefits are enough for you to go it along. So when you enjoy Europe too much, you give it for granted. Well, the thing is that I think many people in the Netherlands or many politicians in the Netherlands don't really have an incentive to explain how those benefits that the Netherlands are, 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 is experiencing are connected to the single market or are connected to, to, to a euro or are connected to certain policy programs coming out of the, out of, out of the EU. So, so in that way, I think also many times national politicians don't have an incentive to explain to their citizens, well, actually, I'm not really responsible for this, or I'm not really 100% responsible for this, or actually, this is an EU-related program. I think that, that the idea that many politicians have, and I see that also sometimes when I talk to some politicians, is that in the... In the that many people think that the more you would know about the... So the more you know, the less you like it. 
But I, I actually, we've done some of this, of the, of these uh, type of experiments and so on, that people are actually quite able to understand that sometimes you need to invest in the pie, right? You, you need to add extra flour, you need to add extra butter, and then the pie will become bigger, and then you can eat the pie together. That actually a lot of people understand that. But I think the, the, the issue that I see happening, and you were asking a little bit about an exit, I mean, I think it's very difficult to imagine an exit when the euro is involved and a very small open economy is involved. But nonetheless, that the Netherlands, I, I think I, I, I told it to a friend of mine, that the discussions in the Netherlands make me, make me kind of think back to the time I used to live in the UK for quite a while, where, where only the costs of integration were discussed. Never any of the benefits, never anything of, 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 of why the EU would be good. And I'm not saying that that is necessarily a story that there's, that there's always more benefits than there are costs. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm just saying that they're not even discussed. So in that way, how can people really form an informed opinion about Europe if we're not really talking about what's at stake? And I think that for me, I would explain that to the electoral incentives that a lot of national politicians have, that they have horizons of of a couple of years because they're fighting elections again. And therefore, you know, with your skeptic entrepreneurs, they are, they're kind of, you know, driving this, 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 this kind of Eurosceptic type, yeah, uninformed, toxic debate. And they're not really doing a lot to, to kind of move the, goal, the, the goalpost in, in, in domestic discussions. Well, let's call it a game. I want to ask you, I want to play a little game with you before we finish. I know uh, you're academics and I'm a journalist and we journalists would like to talk about anything and, and very lightly sometimes. And you like to, to have your own uh, uh, opinions very well based on recent and studies and so on. But I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Let's see if this is possible. I'd like you to tell me in less than one minute, because we're about to finish, how do you see Europe in, say, January 2021, so a little more than six months from now. Uh, just tell me, think about something that may be different after this pandemic is over, and hopefully by January 2021 uh, will be over. So just think about something that is different. I know, I know it's difficult because only four months ago we were talking about the Green Deal, we're talking about Brexit, and now we are, where is Brexit and where is the Green Deal now, right? Uh, but maybe you can think about something that will capture our, our attention and will be different in this post-corona Europe reality. Who wants to start again? I'll give it a try if you want. Um, well, I think global problems like the coronavirus require transnational solutions that clearly are, are not dealt purely by intergovernmental processes led by nation states. So if, if it's only uh, nation states uh, behind closed doors taking uh, decisions, uh, it is unlikely that uh, 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 a successful solution can be found. So I hope that by, by 2021, progressively we will go towards uh, a beyond the nation state perspective that uh, maybe the European Parliament gets a little bit uh, a higher um, role in, in, the, in the power balance within uh, EU institutions. Okay, so a more a stronger parliament, a, a bit more of a federal Europe, more transparency. That sounds good. Sounds good to me. Uh, Catherine, any idea? Yeah, so th there, there comes my pessimistic side, I think. is because we can't, I think because we can't agree on any form of recovery economic pas uh, package, we're going to do this in the European fix, which is unleashing the ECB and doing this technocratically with all the consequences of that. But we're going to see 
debt, you know, mutualization of debt, but through the back door. So, so you know, no one really, really knows what's going on. So I have the feeling that we're going to go a little bit technocratic on the economic side in, in the year to come. Technocratic in the economic side. Okay. Uh, Alberto, what about you? Do you, do you have any uh, a particular forecast of what are we going to be talking about in January? Well... The horizon is uh, is very short. I mean, 20, 2021 Europe is not tomorrow, but after tomorrow. So it's quite easy to to second guess where we could be. Uh, we know that the German presidency is going to come, it's going to take over on July the 1st. Uh, the German presidency will feel historically uh, expected to, to deliver and to create uh, some order in the mess or in the mess unfolding. There will be uh, a few months of uh, relaxation of these uh, constraints, meaning the freedom uh, restrictive measures. There will be a period of lift uh, and uh, suppress. So there will be moments in which there will be restrictions imposed. And overall, I think uh, most of us will be uh, more and more looking at what the European Union does and what it could do for us, which will fit very nicely according to our previous conversation on this conversation regarding uh, the future of, of, of Europe. Uh, very good points, Alberto. Uh, well, uh, thank you all. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Now I know Now I know Catherine's voice. I only knew exactly, her tweets. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> we, 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 we know each other digitally, right? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. I think this was a great start of our series of 10 podcasts, Europe After Coronavirus, promoted by Open EU Debate and produced by Agenda Publica. Thank you all for sharing your passion about Europe in these challenging circumstances. We will continue this conversation very soon because, yes, these lockdown days will be over and we better be ready with answers on the post-corona world that is slowly emerging. Stay tuned and stay safe.